One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show... Tara M. Stringfellow, on her debut novel, Memphis. Poet, former attorney, Northwestern University MFA graduate, and semi-finalist for the Fulbright Fellowship, Tara M. Stringfellow, has written for Collective Unrest, Minerva Rising, Jet Fuel Review, Women's Arts Quarterly Journal, an Apogee Journal, among other publications. After having lived in Okinawa, Ghana, Chicago, Cuba, Spain, Italy and Washington DC, she moved back home to Memphis, where she sits on a porch swing with her hound Huckleberry every evening, listening to records and chatting with neighbours. Her debut, Memphis, which we're going to be talking about today, has been long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction 2023. Tara, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel. Hmm. Like biting into an overripe peach or a plum or some good southern fruit like that. Like real hot on a July day, you know, with the the fruit juice just dripping just all over your face. That's in the sticky fingers with some and throw it back with some whiskey. (laughs) That's I'm surprised you didn't say like a tub of butter pecan ice cream. Oh, or that. (laughs) Some butter pecan ice cream, yes. Some cobbler, some sweet, you know. Um, But yeah, that's that's what I wanted it to be like. I wanted it to be like biting into an overripe piece of fruit each line. So that's what I hope the book is, just delicious and decadent and Southern. And so it it follows the lives of uh, a number of generations of the North women, um, North being their surname, um, living in the city of Memphis. And we're going to talk about a few of those North women now. So first of all, Joan, and we'll start with Joan, because, well, the first thing to say about her is she's the one character in the book that has first person narration. We see the her story through her eyes whereas the rest of the book is in third person so tell us about why you made that decision first of all well it was twofold I wanted to see if I could do it if you know I I'm a poet and this is my first time writing fiction ever so for me it was a fun writing exercise to see if I would be able to do that to switch between first and third person in a book. And the second reason is that I wanted Joan's point of view to to hit more, if that makes any sense, to be on her journey with her. 
Whereas the past generations of women, I wrote in third person because they are in the past. And I wanted Joan to be a much more current line through the book. She's our protagonist. She's our heroine. And she's the one who's going to kind of carry on the family name in the next generation. So that's why I chose first person for her and third for everybody else. But it was fun writing, going back and forth and writing both uh, points of view. There'll be a number of points in the interview. You've just mentioned that you're, you're living back in Memphis. There'll be a number of points in the interview where we'll sort of refer to how some things in the in the novel might reflect your own life. And and one of those first ones for me, obviously, is that Joan is developing as a visual artist across the book. And I wonder to what extent that reflected your own journey as a writer, your emergence as a poet. Yeah, I mean... Of course, right? It's, I feel as if everything every writer (laughs) writes is almost always semi-autobiographical. But I wanted her to have the same passion as I do for writing. She does for her art. And I hope I got that across. You know, there's a show on Netflix that I just love. Uh, I don't know if y'all have seen it over there, (laughs) but it's called The Queen's Gambit. And I love that show. Um, Just because she's so, the main character is so obsessed with chess, with the strategy from a young age, just a little girl, just a little thing. And she's obsessed with it. She goes to sleep every night and she can see a chessboard on her her ceiling and her, before she falls, drifts off to sleep. And I love that. That's what I do with words. You know, I, I'll look up at my ceiling and I'll see a paragraph of the next novel and I'll try and edit it there in my head before I put it down on any paper the next day. And I wanted Joan to have that same obsession (laughs) with, with her art that I do for mine. And so I hope I got that across that all she wants to do, it's all she wants to give back to the world. And uh, I hope that I got that passion, that love for art across in Joan that I I do have in, in my same life, yes. Just as an aside, the, the Queen's Gambit, which watching it, it's actually surprising to discover that it's based on a novel and it's not the biopic of a, you know, a real famous woman chess player. That's like a quite a surprise, I think. Right. And um, I think cinema, actually more so than any any book, has inspired the writings of Memphis. I grew up, you know, with my dad watching, you know, spaghetti westerns. <laughs> and so I wanted the book to have a cinematic feel to it. So I wanted it to be as if you were uh, watching a movie or a, a good show on Netflix um, when you sat down to read the book. So I hope I've done that too. So the book is about the North women, but each generation of women has a a significant male character that might be an antagonist to them or might not be. We'll talk about a couple of those. I'm not going to go too much into Derek, who is Joan's version of that, because mm-hmm. I, I think that gives too much of the book away. But I want to talk about Miriam, her mother, next. Tell us something first about who Miriam is. Miriam is uh, Joan's mother in the book. She's like the middle kind of generation in the book. And she is a single mother, kind of rather unexpectedly, rather suddenly. And she has to raise her girls, uh, Joan and Maya. She takes them back home to Memphis, where she's from. 
and she puts herself through school. She takes odd jobs and she goes to school at night to become a nurse and to provide for her family. She um, conflicts with Joan certain times because Joan is very much an artist and in her head and wants to just, you know, walk around the neighborhood drawing people. And her mother definitely wants her to take a career that will um, ensure that she gets money, to ensure that she never has to raise children by herself and struggle to put food on the table. So that's more of Miriam's concern than Joan's. And so they butt heads in that way. But I do believe that Miriam wants the best for Joan, wants the best for her daughters, both of them. And uh, she's one of my favorite characters and inspired by my actual mother who did the same, who left her divorce, I mean, her marriage in a, in a quick divorce and drove across the country with her children. In real life, my mother has three, not two. And the fact that she did that and provided for us and put food on the table when, you know, we had nothing when we moved here, absolutely nothing, but the love of each other. And uh, so that's Miriam, I guess, in a nutshell. She's gorgeous, too, in the book and my mother in real life. Just gorgeous women. So I presume that I mentioned that you'd um, you'd lived in Okinawa, and I presume that is because of the, uh, the military background. Mm-hmm. So Miriam's husband and Joan's father, Jax, who they at the beginning of the book are basically running away from, He's a he's a military man and actually, you know, very successful military man. But through him, through the portrayal of him in the book, we get to see some of the sort of undiagnosed trauma of war, I guess, that follows these men home. Right. Yeah, I, I've always as the daughter of a Marine and the sister of an airman in real life, <laughs> I've always been interested in war in warfare and what that could do to the psyche of a human being. And I really wanted Jax to stand in for, to be satire for how we, how we fail our veterans with mental health in, in my country. You know, as an active duty serviceman, even now, you can only go to a psychiatrist on, at the VA a few times during your service before you're not considered active duty. They'll take you off if you seek help, if you go to a doctor. And I really wanted Jax to stand in for my personal um, disgust with the medical system in this country, with the healthcare system in this country, with how we treat folk who suffer from mental health issues in this country. We, We sweep them under the rug. We don't talk about it. We throw them away as if these people don't matter. And I was enraged by that, by trying to get insurance in my country. It's been it's a horrible process for just about every single American. And I really wanted to show that Jax, he did the best he could with the resources that this country provided that Black man. And I get a lot of flack from folk, from fans even, saying that, oh, they don't like my male characters. And I said, no, you like them. <laughs> you know, they, they're struggling out here just like everybody else. If you want to hate something, you can hate the systems that those Black men found themselves in, like Jax, like Derek, like even Myron. So that's that's what I have to say about my male characters in the book. August, who is Miriam's sister, Joan's aunt, 
and mm-hmm. Derek's mother. Through August, we see another gift. She has a, a superb singing voice, um, but a gift that is is unfortunately never, you know, that's something that she's never been able to make anything of. And so through her, we do see she has this um, hairdressing salon and the wonderful scenes of the community and the talk in that salon. Tell us something about August. Oh, August. She's one of my favorite. I mean, yeah, she's she's um, a compilation of all the memories of all of my aunties. And, you know, I've been blessed to be surrounded by, you know, women who are larger than life. And August is definitely one of those women. You know, I grew up around aunties who would sing and dance and they were just absolutely gorgeous and funny, you know, like they would make a whole room. <laughs> My auntie Joyce, I'm looking at a, at a, at a photo of her right now on my desk. And uh, sorry, she, uh she died of cancer when I was really young, but uh, just a force of a woman. Sometimes I don't know how the sun still rises in the East you know, without her or my grandma, I'm looking at a photo of her now too. So these women, you know, mean so very much to me, obviously. And uh, what beauty, you know, I don't know of a black woman in my country who hasn't made it great, who hasn't made this country more beautiful, who hasn't made this country a more perfect union. And I think, uh, I think August is my symbol for that, that Black women, since we've arrived in this country in chains, have done nothing but make it better. And uh, that's that's all I have to say about August. Sorry to get so emotional. But I just looked up and I saw my auntie, my auntie Joyce, and God, I wish y'all could see her. Just the most beautiful woman. I hope I did her some justice in making Auntie August. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tara M. Stringfellow, and we're talking about her novel Memphis, which is long listed for the 2023 Women's Prize. And just one more North women then, and that's okay. Hazel, the, the grandmother, oh, yes. <laughs> the matriarch, another absolutely wonderful creation. Tell us something about Hazel. Yes, Hazel. I'm looking at her picture right now, too. My uh, my grandmother was the inspiration for Hazel. Um, no, Hazel is something else, right? I really, actually, technically, the first, you know, matriarch is her mother, Della, who's just a small character in the book, but one of my favorites. But she has her daughter, Hazel. And I just wanted to to make like a, a beautiful Southern... <laughs> motif of a woman and that was hazel like she's she's feisty um even though she's shy she'll stand up for herself she'll protect her family but then she'll also you know make the most delicious meals and you know make beautiful quilts that are decorated throughout the home she's really the centerpiece the the anchor for the home so i really um love that you loved hazel she was a delight a delight to write. I loved writing my Hazel scenes. And Hazel's husband, Myron, is also a wonderful character. He seems like a like an amazing man. And something happens to him in the novel, which is terrible and shocking. And I, we don't necessarily want to give too much away about what that is. But what I did want to say is you do very briefly in the um, acknowledgements of the book allude to the fact that the same thing happened to you or something similar happened to your your own grandfather can we talk about that yeah I've always been so uh, taken aback when folk declare that racism is over that we've come so far I just look at them all confused like I grew up without a grandfather you know most people have you know, two sets. I I didn't have a grandfather from my birth. My mother grew up without a father since she was five years old. And we do very much believe that he was killed here in Memphis, May 30th, 1960, the same day, 60 years before that George Floyd was also killed. And I was writing those chapters as George Floyd, you know, seeing this man be publicly lynched. And for what? you know, over an alleged counterfeit $20 at some store that we have to see a Black man being killed in the streets in the middle of the day. And I was just so enraged that nothing had really changed since my grandfather's own lynching, that I was still 60 years later (laughs) sitting there watching another Black man being killed for no reason other than that he was Black. And so that's why I wrote Myron so heartbreakingly vivid, because George Floyd was heartbreakingly vivid. He was a real man. So was my grandfather. And where are the monuments to these men in my country or in any country? I will have to say, I was rather proud to be an American when George Floyd died, because the, all of America rose up, that Black and white folk, Asians, Jews, we left COVID, our homes and our safety during a COVID lockdown. And we came out to the streets in droves to protest the death of this man. I said, wow, so maybe things have changed because when my grandfather died, the whole neighborhood came out to protest and stayed 
on that lawn all night holding vigil. And I just couldn't believe that this world, you know, there were protests in London, there were protests in Paris, Hong Kong shut down for the death of a black man. So that, um, that gives me some hope that we as, as Americans, as human beings can look beyond race and realize that, you know, we all have a heavenly father. So hopefully some good will come out of this book and out of this world. That is my deep hope. Another major character in this novel is Memphis itself, the city. You paint a very vivid picture of it. And at times it seems like a, a beautiful place to live. And other times, yeah. you know, there's a period of time, you know, you talk about in the 1990s where in the area of Memphis that the novel is set, there is gang warfare going on. Um, no doubt the city is probably gentrified beyond recognition by now. But tell us something about your relationship with the city then, because as I said, you paint a really great, like a vivid picture of it in the book. But then at the same time, it has these sort of, you know, the memories of what happened to your grandfather, for instance, in that same city that you now live in. Tell me about your relationship with the city. I love this city. I would do anything for her. I hope I live and die here. I really do. I love, I mean, I've lived all over and I do live all over. I am leaving for Italy for the summer in June. I cannot wait. I summer every year in Italy, but Memphis is where I live. It's, I don't know of a more diverse city. Like you can go to the nicest restaurant here, fine dining and look across out and you'll see black and white folk breaking bread, eating together. <laughs> like they know each other. I don't know of another place on earth like that. I really don't. And my city is so musical. It's so colorful. We have some of the best musicians, the best art, the best food, the best plate of food you'll ever have. <laughs> we'll probably be in Memphis. And um, I love this city. I do. It can be a violent city. Right now, we're all still and very much, we're all still grieving the death of Tyree Nichols, who died a few months back, another victim of police brutality, whose only crime was that he was an artist, right? So, you know, my city does have its its issues, we'll say that. You know, it's a violent city, and uh, the gun violence here is uh, rather out of control, I'm going to be honest. I don't know what we... Can do about that. I'm not a politician. I'm a poet. <laughs> you know, I don't have all these political solutions sometimes, but I do think it is the duty of us poets to call out, to highlight the problems we see in humanity. And so, yes, my city can be racist. My city can be violent, but my city can also be musical and beautiful and moving. And I'm looking out right now at my backyard. It's so green here. We've got spring is upon us and it's just so lush. It looks like the book cover. And so I wish all of y'all could see what I see right now looking out this window. It's the most gorgeous, gorgeous place I've ever been other than Italy. You know, shout out to, shout out to everybody in Italy who I know and love too. <laughs> Well, mentioning Italy as well, um, and I keep going back to the acknowledgements of this book, but you do something which I, I have never seen before, 
which is a list of restaurants, mm. both in Memphis and, and in Italy and in other places, that were accommodating to you as a black woman who wanted to sit in a restaurant and just be left alone and write. And there are lots of other places that are not like that. So tell us something about what that experience is like to do that, to just want to sit in a place and mind your own business. Yeah, it's hard. (laughs) It is. I have been, I remember in the line, even though I love the line, it's a hotel chain in America. I think they might have it abroad, but definitely in America and in DC, I was sitting at the bar writing and some white man was like, move, even though there were open seats. I was like, I was already sitting there. I was like, no, I'm not going to move. You know, it's a weird feeling, right? Because it's in one world, I've written a best-selling novel and I'm up for huge literary prizes and, you know, right. But then in another world, in that same world, I'm still a Black female body in America and, and I'm treated as such. And I'm asked to move, to get up. I've been at restaurants that before I even order, they ask for the credit card. They don't think I'm going to pay. I've been at restaurants. They follow me outside. I'm just standing there smoking. Everything is inside the restaurant, but they think I've walked out on my bill. It's embarrassing, you know, um, to be treated as such an other at a place where it's public. It's a public restaurant. And since 1964, legally, they cannot discriminate against me. And yet when I'm in public, that happens. I can't even all the time, (laughs) all the time. So I really wanted to make a list. I wanted to make my own green book and the acknowledgements. Uh, Green books were past guides for Black Americans of cities that you could buy. And you it would tell you, go to this hotel, eat at this restaurant. The KKK won't be there. You won't be harassed. You won't be lynched. You won't be killed for going to eat or going to sleep someplace else. And so for me, who I travel all the time, it was really important for me to put that there for other Black women to feel safe in certain places, to know like if you go to that restaurant and you say, oh, Tara, (laughs) I read read about your restaurant. They'll know me. They'll be like, oh yeah, Tara, she comes here every summer. Here, sit right here, you know, and they'll take care of that Black woman, that Black family. That was really important for me to do. And I was also writing the acknowledgments at the same time COVID was happening. And so the restaurants and the the wait staff and the chefs uh, were all on the front lines of COVID and they were dying from it in numbers that, you know, scared most of us. And so I really wanted to tell them thank you for putting food in front of us, for saving us, the restaurant workers in this, in the industry. So that's why I wrote that. I might do that for the next book too. I was thinking should I do a new list of restaurants or not? And just every book have some restaurants where you can go and hotels where Black women can go and feel beautiful and feel safe and feel loved. That's a really good idea. And it's a terrible indictment of the world that it's necessary. But right. anyway, let's, let's end on something positive. So tell me what it means to you that the book has been longlisted for the Women's Prize. I can't believe it. It's very surreal. Even you saying that out loud is like, was it <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't know. I just feel really blessed, really thankful. Again, this is my first time writing fiction. I've never written a short story. Like this was my first time just seeing if I could do it. And having this acclaim for my first time out the gate is really humbling. It's 
Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It, I I now understand when folks say, especially like actors, oh, it's just an honor to be nominated. No, it is an actual. <laughs> I am honored to be nominated. The Women's Prize have done me and the city of Memphis a great, great honor by this nomination. I feel like I've already won, honestly. Like the joy I have when I got that email, it was, uh, yeah, the city of Memphis hopefully is proud. I'm proud of this little book, (laughs) Memphis. And um, I'm just so thankful uh, to the Women's Prize for recognizing my writing. It is not expected. (laughs) So I thank them. With all that's in me, I thank them. Can I get you to read us a bit then to finish us off? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. Let me know when you're ready. Whenever you are. All right. Uh, Let's see. He had arrived in May to find Memphis in full bloom. Memphis in May reminded him of Coolridge's Ode to Xanadu. Stately pleasure domes were massive plantation houses with wraparound porches on every tier, and the majesty of the Mississippi River could put to shame any sacredness of the Alf. Magnolias were white with bloom and as fragrant as honeysuckle, the air was thick with green in the evenings, no matter the day. He could smell barbecue, roasting in warm smokers. And on Fridays, the countless church fish fries permeated the moist air, made it crackle. There was music. There was always music in Memphis. Old gramophones and Cadillacs blaring and oval-shaped wooden home radios were always, always on and at full blast. And he heard voices that would shame the Archangel Gabriel, Big Mama Thornton, Fury Lewis, the long immortal wail of Howlin' Wolf. Jax noticed that niggas in Memphis strutted. Not that Black folk in Chicago didn't, but Jax could only remember the fierce wind of his city. Images of Black figures buttled and layers of down walking slanted against the brute force off the angry wind of Lake Michigan. Here, Memphis niggas walked down the street as if in tempo to the music that was as omnipresent as God. Black folk loving every second of their Blackness. At night, he would head down to Bill Street with the other single officers, eyes wide with awe. All the Black streets held nothing but Black bodies. Bill was filled with Black folk drinking whiskey and laughing and loving in dark corners and singing and drawing switchblades, and tuning guitars, and chewing tobacco, and dancing. Cotton was knee-high. Green fields were tilled in neat rows of cotton, overflowing white. And there were fields of the inedible fruit, the crop that had brought his ancestors and the ancestors of every other Black person he ever knew to this country, to pluck and to pick without a cent, without acknowledgement of their dignity for 400 years. Now 
that he had arrived in the South. He told Miriam he didn't understand how anyone could ever leave it. So I've been talking to Tara M. Stringfellow. We've been talking about her novel Memphis, which is out now from John Murray and is long listed for the Women's Prize of 2023. Tara, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, it's been a delight. It's been such a delight. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.